0: Well, good morning. So good to be back with you, and <clears throat> I know some of you have never met me or my dear wife, my helpmate in life and ministry. This is my wife over here, Jalen. Uh, how many of you know Jay and Lynn German? Have, met, have the privilege of meeting them? Okay, now you know where my wife got her name, Jay Lynn or Jalen. So, uh, you know, coming back here <clears throat> is really. I'm going to try not to be too emotional here this morning because I could just. I think, become a puddle up here, but this is like coming home for us, and we have been so anxious and excited and eager to be back with this church family. I can't tell you how much this church means to us, and as I think about uh, just sort of opening this morning, I need to turn my notes around here, Um, the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, He said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. If I could write thanks in letters large enough to fill the width of this sanctuary, I would do it this morning. When I think of this church and all this meant to us, the ministry to me, my wife, And our children, I have to give thanks and glory to God for all he has done. You know, as mentioned, we were members here for 12 years, and during that time, countless people ministered to us in a variety of ways. God used the ministry of this church family to regularly admonish us to walk closely with the Lord Jesus Christ, to pursue his glory in our marriage and our parenting, to provide multiple avenues for ministry and serving God, and in conjunction with the seminary even to train us for future ministry. When I think about the ministries to our children, and and Pastor James did not ask me to do this, but here's a shameless plug, for the nursery ministries and Awana ministries and children's ministries, and really every need that this church has, every opportunity for ministry. I think about the ministry to our children. When they were so young and in the nursery, the people who served in there cared for them, with love for the Lord Jesus Christ and love for them. They prayed for them. They modeled the gospel for them. They sang to them. When they went into the Awana ministry again, and in Sunday school, they were taught by people who were serving the Lord, sharing God's word with them, living it before them, praying for them and with them. The precious gospel was not just spoken, but it was lived. It was demonstrated before them, not just by their parents, but people, you, like you, some of you are here today. Some have gone on um, to other places of the world, other churches, and even gone on to the glory of our Lord already. In 2005, this church also came alongside of us and commissioned us along with seven other families to go to Williamsburg to come alongside of a struggling church. I became its pastor and I served there for 14 and a half years as the pastor. And uh, this church, Colonial Baptist Church, for the first 16 months of our service there, provided all of my salary. And beyond that, this church has continued to pray for us regularly and minister to us, not just through prayer, but also in their physical presence, notes of encouragement, financial gifts, and so forth. And I want to say to all of you who invested in that ministry, that church is stable, stable. And God has used it over the years to come alongside other ministries and missionaries around the world to faithfully support them. So it's not just ministering to Williamsburg, but it's also ministering around the world. And you have had a part in that. And you will receive eternal rewards for that, for your investments. And so when I think about that, all, all the investments you've made in our lives and in our ministry, I can't help but say thank you and thank you in letters larger than I could ever write. I thank God for using you in our lives and in our ministry. And I think of our children, by God's grace and His grace alone, all three of our children, who are now adults, are living for the Lord. Some of you are still connected with them via Facebook and and so forth. Um, Our firstborn, Ashlyn, is married and and now we have our, our first granddaughter. Her and her husband josh and and our granddaughter living in williamsburg serving faithfully in the local church there our daughter abby abby where are you and your husband scott okay could you stand just for a moment okay this is abby and i know our dear brother john perry i don't know if he's here or even listening today but this is bright eyes bright eyes is, is back here with us today and her husband scott uh, who is from Australia. They are also missionaries uh, with Word of Life, and they are in their deputation process, uh, just trusting the Lord to provide funds so that they can go to Australia and join with the ministry team that's waiting for them here, for them there. He, he was already a part of the ministry, came to the, to the United States for training, and God put them together, and, and they're on their way back. So they're, they're pursuing what God has for them. And our son, Eli, or Elijah, come on, buddy, will you stand up? He was three when we left here. There he is, uh, 19. He is also just seeking what God has for him. He's, he's uh, completed two years of training at Word of Life Bible Institute and, and now enrolled with Liberty Online and just saying, okay, God, what, what do you have next for me? So thank you for, for being an influence, a godly biblical influence on their lives and on our family. And what's happening with Jalen and I? Well, that's why we're here. (laughs) This morning is why we're here. In November of last year, Jalen and I became missionaries with Word of Life, and God is leading us to the Philippines where we will serve in their Bible Institute. Now, before I share with you some more details of that and get into the Word, I, I first would just challenge you to think about your personal philosophy of missions and the support of missionaries and ministries. Just some things I want to throw out there to you. Number one, all of the peoples of this planet comprise what God refers to as His harvest field, and laborers are needed in every corner of that harvest field, every portion thereof, including here at Colonial, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your job, in your school, wherever God has placed you. But unlike God, each of us can only be at one place at one time. Nevertheless, God expects us to be fully engaged in his mission wherever he has placed us. But since we can only be in one place, He has also given us a great commission that concerns all the peoples of the entire world. And he expects us to embrace and be invested in this worldwide mission because God is moving around the world. And we would like, some of us would like to think, or some of us might fear to think, I should say, that COVID and other things that are somehow hindering God's work. Let me encourage you this morning, no one hinders God. Okay, no one is able to hinder God. God will accomplish his mission. And right now, he is sovereignly moving in every nation of the world. He is calling people from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. And one day, we will gather as the elect of the redeemed together in glory, representative of all the peoples of the world. So be encouraged about God working in all the world today. And he wants us, with that encouragement, to say, God, how can I be a part of that? Not just here, I need to be engaged here, but how can I embrace this larger mission of you reaching the world? Well, one of the ways you do that is be, by becoming co-laborers and partners with those who are going to places where God is not sending you. And we know this, this is a missions-minded church. It's one of the, this has been the most missions-minded church I've ever been a member of, okay? I'm, I'm so pleased that missions is constantly in front of the face of this people reminding us that it is not just about us it's not just here and but you can invest with as co-laborers with missionaries going around the world you can do that through your prayer your prayers your your finances and even shared ministry experiences if you ever have a chance to go and be with a missionary family or individual serving where they are serving to have some you know hands-on kind of impact with them And that that word invest, I've used it a number of times here, I want you to remember that. That is a key. That's a a key principle. That's a right mindset. When you think of the local church, and I think of the the condition of the church in this nation, unfortunately, so many people today act as if the church is a department store, and they are its consumers. It's what do you have from me? friends? That to me is, is so unbiblical. That, that perspective is so wrong and it produces, it, it, it actually leads to a weak, inauthentic gospel. It leads to weak so-called Christians and very weak churches. It's not about what the church can do for me. It's, I am part of the church, how do I invest with God? You see, the church is, is a local family representative of God's family throughout the world. And how do, you do, how do you invest in your local church? Will you become committed? You say, this is the local family that I, will, that I will knit my hearts with and we will lock arms together and we will serve together and we will pray together and I, and I will give them my resources in every way to help the ministry of this church so that together we can produce a spiritual harvest for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the harvest, amen? This is not about us and, and what we get. The local church is coming alongside to say, how can I give to the Lord? It's all supposed to be an expression of worship to the Lord. you think about missions, you know, many people consider missionaries to be beggars, always holding out their hands, asking for money. And yes, we ask for prayers too, because that makes our begging sound more spiritual, right? Don't you think that? Have you ever thought that? You don't have to raise your hand, but you probably have. In the reality of Romans 10, 15 says, how shall they preach unless they are sent? We understand, especially this, this is a, an autonomous local church, not, not bound to an association where you just give money to an association the association provides for, for missionaries. No, missionaries like us and those supported by this church are, are ones who are supported by individual local churches and families and so forth. We say, you know, I want to partner with them and what God is doing. You may not be able to go in person. God may not want you to go in person. God may have you right here, or He may move you to another location. But through your partnership, you can invest in missionaries around the world and have a part in what God is doing in their ministries. When you think of prayer, you could pray, Lord, bless all the missionaries everywhere. And I'm not saying that's a wrong prayer. I appreciate the heart of that. But there's a difference between that prayer and maybe a prayer that I think some of you probably prayed recently. God, please bless the Sealies and encourage them. Give them the grace. May they see and experience the sufficiency of your grace as they say goodbye to old friends in Cameroon and make new friends here in Virginia Beach. Will you bless them in this transition of ministry and encourage and strengthen their hearts? You see the difference in in those two kinds of prayers? One's very specific. It's focused on a need you know of what is going on in that missionary's life, and you're praying specifically for that versus just the generic. And I encourage you to be not the generic kind of prayer, not the generic kind of investor, but the very specific kind for all of your missionaries. And you may say, well, You know, isn't supporting missionaries the church's responsibility? Well, yes. But do you mean the organization or the people? You see, you are the church. I am the church. The church is an assembly, a gathering of believers in Jesus Christ. And just as a a local church cannot function without individuals putting their hand to the plow and doing their portion... And, and I can't, I don't have a clue of how many people have done something even in preparation for the services and studies that are going on on campus here today, much less those who will be actively participating during those times. But many, many people are individually invested, working, serving. That's what it takes for a local church to function. Think about the ministries of the Old Testament prophets, of Jesus, the apostles. How were they supported? Not primarily by organizations, but by individuals, people who had a heart for God and His ministry and joined alongside them, maybe to give them a piece of bread or a cold drink of water to support them in their ministry, encourage them, and send them on their way. Practically speaking, just consider what's happening in our world today. Religious freedoms are shrinking around the world. Persecution is rising. And as these conditions grow worse, formal public religious organizations will, be, will be, have, to be, they'll have to be replaced with less formal, perhaps even private or secret gatherings of believers. And those new conditions will make a change in how missionaries are supported. It's gonna to have to be pushed down, trickled down to individuals and families. And i would just say very personally speaking the relationship between a missionary and an individual investor is so much more personal and the sense of partnership so much more intimate when they personally know and pray for one another. Like I shared earlier, the different kinds of prayers when you, when you know what is going on in your missionary's life. And I would encourage you, this, this church supports a lot of missionaries. Some are, are perhaps maybe underfunded right now. All of them could use prayer. Do you know how to pray for them? Do you care? You know, and, and God, as you just, I would encourage you get all the list of all your missionary families, gather all their prayer letters. Ask your pastors if you don't have a personal copy. Ask them they can send you something. Sorry, pastors, but you're going to have a job to do. Hopefully, you're sending out some information to people, and then start praying for them. And perhaps God may prick your heart and burden you, urge you, push you, say, focus, pay attention, get involved in this missionary's life. Send him a note of encouragement. Get involved with him. And so back to the perspective of missions. When you hear about the ministry of another missionary, I would, I would urge you to ask God if and how he wants you to become co-laborers by investing with them through your informed, specific prayers, your finances, and perhaps even some shared ministry experiences. Some of you know what it's like to, find, to invest in retirement plans, right? And I don't know if you just leave all that to someone else to decide where the money's going to be invested or if you take more of an active role in it. If you take an active role, you're going you're to read something called a prospectus, right? It's a description of the investment fund and its track record, and you're going to look and see, is this what I, something I consider to be worthwhile and be beneficial? When a missionary comes before you or another ministry, what God is doing you in there is giving you a spiritual ministry prospectus. And say, this is what the ministry looks like, and you should say, God, is that something that you want me to be a part of? And so with that in mind, I want to give you a glimpse of the ministry in the Philippines where God has called us. Would you show the video?
1: privilege to serve him like in our kitchen Assign, we should wake up early and in our work time in uh, choir in the puppet ministry and especially I enjoy doing the weekend ministry God has put in my heart the excitement the joy and especially the compassion for the four the lost people. During that ministry, I learned not to think of myself but for the souls of those lost people. God's glory is our first concern and not our own comfort. And God is continuously molding and shaping me to be the woman He wants me to be. And until now, uh, I'm still searching for God's leading and His will in my life. But My desire is to be in the mission field. I wanted that my life be useful and fruitful in this future ministry people entrusted me.
2: Hi, I'm Jimwell Bernabé, a second year student of Word of Life Bible Institute. As a student, the Lord has given me a desire and passion to continue a second year. Why? Because I have a burden in my heart to study and to ponder His Word, and I have this desire to teach the truth that I've learned and I'm still learning from Word of Life Bible Institute, and also I have desire, and this is my prayer to be part of the music ministry, especially in our church, to reach out the youth, to to share them the gospel and to disciple them, and also as a secondary student, I'm learning to to lead to lead a person to share Jesus Christ and to be a leader in Word of Life. The Lord has been faithful to me, brought me here by His grace, from my bills and also I appreciate what the Lord is doing in my life, He's giving me a more desire to seek His will and to obey His will through my quiet time, through my prayer life, through the fellowship with fellow students, with fellow believers, and also uh, exposing in different kinds of ministry like children's ministry, like teaching, like preaching, doing sketchboard, and also sharing the gospel with the young people, and with the adults, and Lord willing, if the Lord calls me to be in a mission field. My prayer is to be a missionary or evangelist or to be a minister in our church someday.
0: is working through the World Life Bible Institute in the Philippines and all their institutes around the world. Um, You know the the plan for me is to serve as a professor and as the academic dean of the Bible Institute there and uh, they have two degree programs. I will oversee the curriculum for all those. Uh, Eventually they'd like me to take over teaching uh, the year-long classes of Bible survey and systematic theology. And I'll also be responsible for bringing in 20 to 30 guest lecturers each year to teach modules. And think about this, in the Bible Institute format, in one year, they take a student through the scriptures about two and a half times, from their quiet times, through all the classes and assignments. And they also give them over 700 hours of hands-on ministry opportunities and experiences just in that one year. Uh, My dear wife, Jalen, she will assist me in many aspects of my ministry. Including hospitality to all the guest lecturers as well as fellow staff families. Both of us should have multiple opportunities to disciple students as well as the many young staff members and their families that are on campus. There's over 80 people there on the campus, and we will be the oldest ones. Um, We have very young staff, but we look forward to pouring our lives into the next generation of Christ's church in the Philippines and their outreach to other Asian peoples. When I think back to our Bible college days, Bible college was the first Christian educational experience I ever had. I grew up in church, but I was never really discipled, didn't know how to handle God's word for myself. And when I went to Bible college and learned how to handle the scriptures, it changed my life. It changed my life. Gave me such a confidence of really knowing, okay, this is what god's word means and now i know what to do with it and i am so excited that god might god might use us to help others have that same experience that they would say yes now i know how to handle god's word and it will change their lives and it will equip them for service and god is doing a work right now there's so much more i could share but god is doing a work of opening up the eyes and building a greater vision amongst word of life Philippines to send out more and more workers into his harvest field. And I would love to share more about that. And I don't have time with you this morning, but I've just asked you to consider as you as you think about that that's just another opportunity. God may want you to to partner with us as a church or as individuals or families to say, you know what, I I I want to be your co-laborer. I want to hold you up in prayer, or I want to give, or tell me how I can come and serve with you. You know, just let us know. We have a table out in the foyer. There is a sign-up sheet there. Uh, We're not going to harass you if you give us your, your email address, but we would love to get in contact with you. We would love to send you our monthly email newsletter so you do know how to pray specifically you know informed prayers um, and then if you'd like to meet with us to learn more we would love to share more no no commitment necessary but if you'd like to learn more we would love to share more about the ministry with you but we got to get into god's word and that's our primary concern here this morning but thank you for bearing with me as i share the ministry what god has called us to would you take your bibles and turn to 2nd samuel chapter 14. <clears throat> 2 Samuel chapter 14. Now, as you turn, let me ask you a few questions. Raise your hand if you've ever sinned against someone else. Okay. All right, pastors, we have some perfect people here. I, I didn't see some hands. Okay. Um, no. Okay. This, this message is for us. We've sinned against someone else. Raise your hand if you believe that the person sitting beside you has ever sinned against someone else. Okay then this lesson is for you and for them. Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever been sinned against by someone else. Mm. Yeah, this lesson is for you. Raise your hand if you've ever struggled to forgive someone else. This lesson is for you. And if you're willing, I'd ask you to raise your hand one more time if this applies. Raise your hand if you would say that you've You have forgiven someone, but you would just as soon never have to see them again. (laughs) You see, you may wish them well. You may say, well, I know I'm supposed to desire God's best for their lives. But you'd probably feel a lot more comfortable if you were never in their presence again. It hits you, doesn't it? This message is for all of us, including me. You know, a couple months ago, I came across a verse that I know I would have had to have read multiple times. I I try to read through the Bible each year, and so I know I've read over this verse, but you know how God's Word is sometimes the Spirit of God. It's almost like the verse jumps off the page at you, right? Well, that's what happened to me with this verse. And God was saying, Eric, you need to meditate on it. And if I'd say I'll be more transparent... I needed to be rebuked by it. In recent years, my willingness to forgive people has been challenged and tested, perhaps in some ways that I had never quite been tested before, not to the death, not to the degree. Some of you may say, you know, I, I've been betrayed by someone. It can happen in marriage, in friendships, other kinds of relationships, co workers. Betrayal is something we never expect, right? And yet, we should, theologically speaking, right? Because what is God trying to do in each believer? He's trying to make us to become like Christ. In order to become like Christ, we have to share in His sufferings. One of the ways Christ suffered is by being betrayed. He even quoted... Uh, when, When he was revealing around the table that last supper, revealing his betrayer, he quoted from Psalm 41, verse 9, where King David wrote about being betrayed. The person who I used to share food with has lifted up his heel against me. Betrayal can feel like perhaps some of the worst, most painful types of sin and the sorrow it brings. And forgiving someone who has betrayed you will test you perhaps to a degree unlike other sins. When I think of some recent experiences over the past few years, I would say those who sought my forgiveness, and let me back up just to be humble, I certainly have sinned against other people plenty, okay? During the same time that others have sinned against me. But as I think about this verse and how God brought it to my mind, I would have said, you know, I have forgiven people who asked for forgiveness. Some never asked, and I know that I still have to maintain a spirit of love and a willingness to forgive towards those who would never recognize their sin and, and never seek forgiveness. But I, so I, I knew that, but I would say, well, I have forgiven. But I was in a state of my heart. Regularly when I would read certain scriptures, the pain would rise. The anger would be tempted to, to, to come out. Yet again, I would say I have forgiven, but I really didn't desire the presence or fellowship of certain people in my life. And for a while, I contented myself with that until the Lord brought this verse to bear. The Holy Spirit got my attention with 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14. Before we read it, let me give you the backstory here, okay? Just real quickly, we've got to understand the context. In 2 Samuel 14, we find King David caught in the middle of an intriguing scheme that was devised by Joab, the commander of his army, on behalf of Absalom, who was estranged from his father, David. Okay, David has a son named Absalom, who was estranged from his father, Joab, and Absalom were were friends, Joab is trying to make an appeal for Absalom to be reunited and reconciled with his father David. In chapter 11, we know David gave in to his sexual lust by committing adultery with Bathsheba. That resulted in her becoming pregnant. And David tried unsuccessfully to cover up his sin, but eventually resorted to having her husband murdered by the hands of the enemies of God's people on the battlefield. Chapter 12, we find David confronted by the prophet Nathan, which did result in David's repentance and confession. Nathan then reassured David that God had put away his sin. However, God's promised punishment was significant. You can read about that in verses 10 through 14. It even included the death of the child produced through that adultery. Nevertheless, God did give them another son who would eventually rule over Israel. We know his name is Solomon. In chapter 13... We, we find, of course, David had multiple wives and thus also multiple families. One of his sons named Amnon, also had a problem with lust like his father. Amnon lusted after his half-sister, Tamar. <clears throat> Amnon then raped Tamar, and then afterwards sent her away with hatred, and it says that his, his passion of hate toward her was greater than the passion of lust that he had with her for her previously. When their father David heard about it of course he was very angry we see that in verse 21 but apparently did nothing to discipline his son and certainly did not kill him as required by the mosaic law now perhaps David realized that he was just as guilty as his son and wanted to show him mercy like he had been shown mercy nevertheless his apparent inaction towards Absalom created a breeding ground for hatred or towards Amnon, created a breeding ground for hatred in the heart of Absalom, who was the brother of Tamar. This hatred built and it resulted in Absalom murdering Amnon two years after he raped his sister. Now, after Absalom killed Amnon, he fled to the land of his grandfather, Talmai, who was the king of Geshur, and he was there for three years. Consider with me these verses. Chapter 13, look back there. Verse 37 through 39. We'll pick up just at the end of verse 37. <clears throat> and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. As I understand that, David was not mourning any longer for Amnon He was mourning for his son Absalom, who was estranged from him, the one who had murdered his half-brother. He longed for him day by day by day. You know, this is the grace of God, which is always undeserved, but the Spirit of God uses in us to get us, to remind us, to keep reminding us there's something we ought to be doing. There's something amiss in our lives and in our relationships. We need to learn and be trained to pay attention to that voice. It was coming out through David's emotions, longing, mourning for his son. David knew that God wanted him to be reconciled to his son. But for a long time, He did nothing about it. By way of application, think about your own lives. Are you currently estranged from someone or their family, friend? Has their sin or yours or or both of you caused such a separation? If so, how would God describe the condition of your heart this morning towards that person? Is there still anger? Is there perhaps hatred? Bitterness? Even perhaps mixed with that is their mourning, sorrow, longing. There's sorrow because there's been loss. It's not the way it was. And there's, that, that's the grace of God working you, saying, you know, there was something better. There is something that needs to be renewed. We need to pay attention to that. what sort of heart condition does God want for you when you think of that person? Chapter 14, this is our immediate context. And we we don't have time to read through all of it this morning, but Joab, the commander of David's army, he recognized David's concern for Absalom. And he concocted a scheme to motivate David to be reconciled with his son. Let's read a few of these verses. Chapter 14, beginning verse 2, God's word said... And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now for now we're going to skip the story. You can read that later. Look at verse 20. It comes out that Joab was behind this whole scheme as as David questions her. And this is what she says. To bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. Verse 21. And the king said to Joab, all right, I have granted this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. <clears throat> Note verse 24. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. You see a problem there? Not full reconciliation yet. Okay, he can come back, but he can't come back to me. Now, what was the woman's story that even moved David to this degree? Uh, I'll summarize it for you. She comes up to the story that she had two sons, one son killed the other son. So the people around her, in her village and so forth, they demanded justice according to the law, which meant the other son needed to die. Well, what position would that put her in? She would now be, she was a widow, she would now be a defenseless widow. Having no sons, no inheritance, she she would become a beggar. Or the way she put it in verse 16, to destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Now note, this story is similar to that of Amnon and Absalom justice demanded that Absalom die for murdering his brother, even though Amnon should have died for the sin and crime of raping his half-sister Tamar. But yet again, instead of obeying the law, David did not seek justice nor reconciliation. But instead, he continued to mourn for his son while simultaneously finding an unsatisfactory comfort in maintaining a distance between himself and Absalom. We do the same kind of things, don't we? That's why I said you may have forgiven somebody, but you would just be fine if you never saw that person again. That's maintaining an unsatisfactory comfort by keeping a person at a distance, though you said you've forgiven them. So Absalom, in essence, was living in a state of exile or banishment from his father, his family, and from most of God's people. Does this resound with you? Are you exiled from someone right now? Are you currently keeping someone at a distance? Now, Joab's plot, it worked to a point. David allowed Absalom to come back to Jerusalem to his own house, but he was not allowed to see his father's presence. There was no true reconciliation at this point. That did not happen, if it ever did truly, it didn't happen for another two full years. You can see that in verses 28 and 33. And it seems obvious this lack of purposeful reconciliation created a growing bitterness within Absalom. Eventually Absalom commits treason against his own father and tries to steal the throne. Now, we don't have time this morning to dig any more into those details nor the ramifications of this delayed reconciliation, but we do need to take a few minutes to meditate upon the powerful theological statement that was made by this woman in verse 14. Would you turn there with me? Look at this. <laughs> actually, we get in verse 13. So the woman said, why then have you, she's saying to King David, why then you, King David, have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, and that the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet, oh, please pay attention to this. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. I'll read that again. This is what was like a spiritual tuba by swung by the Spirit of God hitting me between the eyes. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled expelled from him. Gospel alert. I mean, it should just be blinking right now. The flags waving. The gospel right here in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 14, 14, a statement about how God brings sinners to himself. He doesn't keep them at a distance. Instead, he devises a means to bring them back so they aren't kept at a distance forever. You see, in the first part, the woman basically says, we're all going to die. My sons are going to die. I'm going to die. That's really not the point, okay? What the point is to her story and to David's life is the second part. She speaks of the grace of God that overcomes sin and thus provides the means for sinful people to be reconciled back to him. In verse 13, she bluntly rebuked him, plainly called him guilty. you imagine telling the king, you're guilty. You've schemed this thing against the people of God because your own son, you're keeping him at a distance in a foreign land. And you say, my son should be protected? What about your own? That's the gist of the story. What about your own? You're keeping him at a distance. God used that plot to soften David's heart as he considered the, the, the needs of that woman and the trial that she was going on and the mercy that she needed and even her son, God softened his heart to realize, yeah, that is me. The woman basically said, David, you're not being like God. So if like I have ever kept someone at a distance, I think God would be telling you today the same thing he told me. Eric, you're not being like me. And that's the way we're supposed to be, isn't it? And so for the work of God to continue, for us to grow, God says, this is who I am, and this is how you fall short. I will give you the grace. I've already given you my Holy Spirit. I will give you the grace to change, to repent, to confess, and to grow because I want you to become like me in how I forgive. How I not just forgive and say, okay, I'm wiping the slate clean, but I'm welcoming you back into my life. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying the grace of God is greater than our sinfulness. The grace of God is greater than our pain. The grace of God overcomes our hatred, our anger. The grace of God can comfort in loss. Our God is a redeeming God, which means he takes the mess and he can bring new life. And I would ask you this morning, if you find yourself in that position, to take the step of faith, which the just will live, continually live by faith. This will be a test of your faith to move forward towards such a person to be reconciled because that's the gospel. We are all sinners. We've testified to that already this morning. God provided the way to overcome our sin. You see, our sin separated us from God. We were banished. We were enemies. And while we were his enemies, still Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love for us. When Christ went to the cross, he satisfied the righteous demands of the law by living his perfect life. He also Satisfy the other part of the law, which is a demand for justice and God's wrath against sin. He took our sin upon himself on the cross, paying for it, providing a way for our sin to be paid for, us to be cleansed, forgiven. He became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen? It says, takes away the sin of the world and reconciles us back to Himself brings us into an intimate personal relationship with Him. And so when we think about these relationships, just frankly, the gospel has to have its part. we got to live out the gospel in our personal relationships. And I would say, I wonder if there's someone here today that the Spirit of God is working on you, convicting you to say, you're not reconciled to me. You're still my enemy. You are still banished. You may be religious, but there is one way to God is through Jesus Christ alone and his sacrifice. You must repent of your sin. You must call upon Jesus in faith, trusting in his sacrifice on the cross to be sufficient for your sins. That's the only way to be reconciled to him. If that's you today, I would urge you to put your faith in Christ. And if there's anyone here today who is, like, who is like me, and there's someone you're keeping at a distance, someone you're really, you say you're forgiving, but you're not reconciled. I think God, the message is clear. We must pursue. And it, of course, for two parties to be reconciled, both have to come together. I can't say that every, in every relationship it's going to work out like you want it. But I do know we have to do our part. We must pursue it. Now, what, why? Why does this have to do with missions? You may not have asked that, but you're probably expecting a missionary. Shouldn't you be saying something about missions? Okay. Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5, okay, because this does affect our mission. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll just look at a few of the verses. I encourage you, if God is speaking to you in this, meditate on 2 Samuel 14 this week. Uh, look at the broader concept of context of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I just want to read three verses there with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 18 through 20. Now the gospel is all over this passage. And the apostle Paul is describing his ministry certainly as an apostle, but also of truly, I believe, of every believer. Verse 18. Now all things are of God I just did that. Do anyone here that is not yet a believer? I, I pleaded with you to be reconciled to God. You see, but this, this describes our mission. We as believers, we've all been uh, committed to us has been, is this ministry of reconciliation or the, the word of reconciliation. King David was to serve almost like an ambassador to the people of Israel. He was a representative of God. And he was supposed to live out the law. He was even supposed to write a copy of it for himself so that he knew it. But he was supposed to live it out. And, of course, he was supposed to judge in accordance with the law of God, but also according to the grace of God and his ministry to him in his life. David failed miserably in many ways. And in many ways, he succeeded. But in this relationship with Absalom, obviously, he was falling short, both of the law and of grace and mercy. The Apostle Paul is describing us here as believers in the same way. We are ambassadors for Christ. We have this ministry of reconciliation that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And that's our message, right? That's our message. No matter where you're serving in the world, whether it's in Virginia Beach, in your neighborhood, or Chesapeake, or Australia, or Peru, or the Philippines, wherever in the world, the ministry is the same. Be reconciled to God. There is a way to come back into relationship. You, sinner, with a holy God. That shouldn't happen. That's not human. We can't devise that. But God made a way through Jesus Christ for sinful people to be reconciled to himself. To be welcomed into his very presence. To be embraced by him. And if you would, be kissed in that embrace. Be part of his family. That's our message. Now tell me, how do you think we will represent this message to the world if with our lips we say the words of the gospel? But with our lives, we're denying its grace and mercy towards someone in our lives. It's called being hypocritical. We're all guilty, right? In many ways, because we don't live up to what we believe. But I would just urge you in light of this, this truth this morning, we have the message of the gospel. We need to demonstrate that reconciliation, that desire, that willingness, that openness to welcome those people back into our lives. Verse 19 says that says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, not keeping a record. I think of Stephen, the first martyr, as the stones were hitting his body. What did he pray to God? God, don't hold this against them, which was just like his Lord said on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And to the, one of the thieves next to him, left or right, I don't know, who had cursed him earlier, but then repented and said, please remember me in your kingdom. Jesus gave him those words of grace and comfort today. You will be with me in paradise. You will be with me it's reconciliation. The gospel is glorious for us, right? Can I, can I get an amen? <laughs> Isn't it glorious for us? We treasure it. There may be people in our lives who they are guilt-ridden and they feel the loss like you feel the loss of the separation from you. They may not be pursuing it they may not know how to pursue it but because of being here this morning i think we all know we ought to pursue it so we need to do what we know to do and prayerfully ask god to help us be reconciled with those people so that we don't just declare the message with our lips but we live it out with our lives because that's what god does amen let's pray Oh, Father in heaven, when we consider your glories, we are so humbled. We fall so far short, (laughs) and yet in your kindness and grace, you continue to pursue us and to teach us and to train us to conform us to the image of your Son. Perhaps, Lord, we've never realized this morning that even the sins of others against us have to happen in order for us to share in your sufferings at some point we're, we're going to feel betrayed and that's going to be an opportunity yet again to live for you that your light your character your love your forgiveness your mercy and grace your glories would shine through us god we are not sufficient for these things but your grace is always sufficient for us. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You live within us. We treasure you. We treasure your gospel. Lord, help us to take the step of faith and trust you that we can, not just you, but we can pursue reconciliation so that you would be glorified. Lord, even if the relationship never becomes what it was, you can be glorified through us. And that is the reason we're here. So may you get all the honor and praise in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen. Amen. Pastor Ben, I think.